This week's parsha is Parsha Vayigash. And in the middle of Ravi'i, the Torah describes how the brothers of Yosef return back to their father in Eretz Canaan, and Vayagidu Lemer. They tell him the following. Oid Yosef Chai. Yosef is still alive. And he is the ruler. He is the viceroy over the entire land of Mitzrayim. But his heart rejected it, for he could not believe them. There was something that was incredible about what they were saying. It didn't ring true to him. Vayidabru Elav as called Divrei Yosef Asher Divrei Aleim, and then they repeated to him all of the words that Yosef told him, told them, Vayar es Agolos Asher Sholach Yosef Lasseis Aisai, and then he saw the Agolos, he saw the wagons that Yosef sent to transport him back to Mitzrayim, Vatechi Ruach Yaakov Avihem. And suddenly the spirit of Yaakov, their father, was alive and revived. And the question obviously is, Meikara, Meikasava, what did we think originally, Vibhusayf Meikasava, and what do we think now? What was so incredulous about what the brothers were telling Yaakov to begin with? Yosef is still alive. No, I don't believe it. He refused to believe that Yosef was still alive. All of a sudden, the brothers are shakranim. He didn't believe them. And then they told something that Yosef said to them. He saw the Agales. We know the Chazal that they reminded him that they were learning the Sugya of Egla Rufa together before uh, they had parted ways. And then he believed them. And then that he, his spirit was revived. What happened? What exactly was not believable when they told him originally that he was alive and then in the end suddenly they did believe him? So Rav Gifter in his Sefer called Pirkei Taira says the following verse. When they told Yaakov Avinu that Yosef Chai, that Yosef is still alive and he's the viceroy over Mitzrayim, he believed them. It's not like, oh, come on, I don't believe, tell me another one. He believed them. He said, I believe you. But what the Torah means to say that Yafeg Libai Kilohem in Lahem was that he didn't believe that Yosef was truly alive. He believed that he was physically alive. He believed whatever they told him, that his son is alive, but he refused to believe that he was alive in a ruchniistic sense, which is the real type of life. Like we spoke about Hanukkah. Life is really defined by the ruchnius that we have and by our ability to understand what we're supposed to be doing and doing it hopefully right. That's what life is. If Yosef was alive physically, but he was down in the 
Eretz Mitzrayim, which was the land that was full of Tumah, Shtupe Zima. Mitzrayim was the Avi Abayisa Tumah of the world. All of the Arias was in Mitzrayim. All the Tumah, all the decadence of the world emanated from Egypt. He says, I don't believe that Yosef HaTzadik is still a Tzadik in Mitzrayim. It's not Shayach. He might be alive, but that doesn't mean much to me. I don't believe that he's still alive in a Ruchniistic sense, because that's all Yaakov Avinu really cared about. They say stories about, and Rav Gifter brings it there, but there are other Gedalim, but Rav Gifter speaks about Rav Bloch, the Rashiva of Tells, who heard that his daughter was killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, in Russia. And he was very relieved. He was happy when he heard that news, believe it or not, because he said, I was always afraid that she wasn't, she, she went to Russia for whatever reason, he didn't hear from her. So he was afraid that she probably became a communist, and she's probably living a life of, you know, of, of kfira, of minas, of apikursus, and that troubled him to no end. When he heard that she, that she died, Al-Kiddin he was happy, because a life, without Tyre, without Ruchnius, in a Godol's eyes, is not a life. The mere fact that a daughter would be alive, but not from, and not be Shemit Tyre Mitzvah, and the opposite, would make it almost better that she's not alive. They say similar mice about the Briskarov. These Gedalim care that their children should be alive in a Ruchnistic way. If they're not alive in a Ruchnistic way, then they might as well be dead. It's better to, for them to be dead in a certain way. That's the way a Gadol views life. And Yaakov Avinu, says of Gifter, had that same Ashkafa. That I believe that he's alive, but if he's not alive for Ruchnius, then I don't care if he's alive. I don't believe you that he's alive. And until he saw the Agalas, until he saw those wagons which symbolized the Egla Rufa, and he heard the words of Yosef through the Agalas, through the brothers Shlichos, and he understood that Yosef still was holding in Tyra and in learning and in Yerushamayim, only then did he feel revived again and understand that Yosef, his son, was indeed alive in the truest sense. Not just physically. That was never in doubt from the moment that, their, that the sons told him that he was alive. But what was in doubt was the Ruchnistaga element of the life of his son, and that was confirmed by the Agolis. The Arachayim HaKadosh says a little bit later in the Parsha, in Parak Memvav, Pasuk Lamed, on the Pasuk Vayemer Yisrael, when Yaakov finally met Yosef, and he says, now I could die. Now that I've seen your face and that you're still alive, I could now finally die. He knew already that he was alive. He was told already in, in Canaan that he was alive. So he knew that he was chayv in mitzios. He was afraid, maybe because he was surrounded by the guyim. Yosef fell from the plateau of 
who Yosef HaTzadik was meant to be, and that's not called a lie. This is Mamish the murder of Gifter, that we find much early in the Archaim HaKadosh, that life is defined by Yaakov Avinu, by the Ruchniyastik component to one's life. Being alive in Metzios is not nearly, or not valuable perhaps at all, to Yaakov Avinu, unless you're alive in the fullest sense, which is the Ruchniyastik sense. I heard once in Misa about Rav Baruch Ber. Rav Baruch Ber, Leibowitz, the Roshiva of Kamenetz, Sechitadik Lebracha, came to America in 1929. Very interesting stories that are told about this visit to America. If you want to see a few, a few vi- stories about this, I refer you to All for the Boss, has a, a lot of beautiful stories about when he was in America in this year, in 1929, and he was in, in New York, and he was also in Baltimore. And he was here, of course, like all Rosh Hashivas, they came to America to raise money for the yeshiva. And Rabbi Baruch Bear came down to Baltimore, 1929, and he had a Talmud that lived in Baltimore by the name of Kuppel Walpert. Kuppel Walpert was a Gevir, he eventually became um, one of the, I think he was the chairman of the board of Neisrael at one point. He was a very, very well-respected Balabas in Baltimore. It's going back in the early years. And, um, and a couple of went to visit to pick up his Rebbe from, the, the, I guess, the railroad station. And he came in a, a fancy agala in a wagon, and he was dressed in his finery and whatever the American style was at the time, let's say a bow tie and a, and a suit of some sort, and he looked like an American. He looked like an American balabasted at that time. Sir Baruch Ber comes into the wagon, and he doesn't say a word. He looks at his Talmud from, this couple of was a Talmud already back in Europe, he came to America, he struck it rich, and he was living in Baltimore, and now they were reunited after many years, and he takes a look at his Talmud, and he doesn't utter a word. And his Talmud, Rav Kuppel, didn't know exactly what was going on. Like, he didn't give him a shalom, he didn't give him, he just was like looking down at a very awkward few moments in that wagon, in that caravan, you know, what does Rabbi want? Like, why are you not talking to me? All of a sudden, Rabbi Kuppel understood that Rabbi Affair was afraid that America had done its damage on Rabbi Kuppel, and although, you know, he still was not with his Rabbi, but maybe he wasn't from anymore. After all, he was dressed in the American labush, and he was wealthy, and he was living in Baltimore, back when Baltimore was not such near Bambi so. And a couple started crying to him, and says, Rebbe, I still learn Tyra. Rebbe, I'm Shomer Shabbos. Rebbe, I'm Shomer Tyra Mitzvah. I'm the same couple that I was back in Europe. And then Rebarch Bear took his Talmud's head in his hands, and kissed him, and says, Oi, my couple, I'm so happy to see you. Shalom Aleichem. 
He was so worried, Rebbe that he was alive only physically. But Baruchnius, he was no longer alive. And only once his Talmud told him that he was fully observant, that he was the same year that he was in Europe, then, and only then, Batachi Ruach Yaakov Avim, Rebbe was able to feel comfortable in that caravan. But that's the aside. In the eyes of a Gado, in order for a person to be alive, in order for a Talmud to be alive, he has to be alive, Baruchnius. The physical life is not really that. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to be physically alive. That doesn't cause us simcha. If a person's alive in the fullest sense, that's a life. Sometimes a person has a birthday party. And sometimes, you know, it's, uh, it's a beautiful event. Because I was just asked to give a, a little clip from my uncle. He's having, he's having a 90th birthday this Sunday. So my cousins called me and asked me if I, they're making like a video montage for him. And they asked me to put a little clip in. There's a, a Yid that went through the war that was a, a Rebbe in Broyers for over 50 years. And Mamisha, a real old-time Yekish and with everything just right, living in America, you know, for many, many, many decades, over a half a century in America, back when America wasn't America like we know it today. And he's still Mamisha al al-Avayda, sitting with his, with his, with his farim and, and beautiful mishpacha that he produced. That's a birthday that's right to have. Sometimes you go to a birthday party and it's 90 years of Hylos. So we're, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating a life of, of not what a person is necessarily supposed to be alive for. It's a difference between life and not life. It's something that somebody outside of Yeshiva I don't think would appreciate the birth. Because, you know, I'm alive. What are you, what are you talking about? Why is life not enough? But in the eyes of Yaakov Avinu, in the eyes of Baruch Ber, in the eyes of Bloch, life alone is not worth living unless it's being lived for the purpose that it was designed for. And the, the life of a Yid is a life of Kiyam of Teremitzvah. So when we're able to claim at the end of our life or anywhere in between from birth to death that we are doing the Ratzon Hashem, then we can have a birthday party because we're alive. And we could celebrate our life. But if a person, Rahman Litzlan, is not doing what he's supposed to do, or she's supposed to be doing, then you're alive, but that's not really a life. Life as defined by Das Torah, by the Rabbi Nishlam, by the Torah Kedesha, by the Gedalim of all time, is one which is only Kedai if we're doing the right things with our life. I heard a vart from a Rebbe of mine, Rebbe Lippa Gelbworth, who's a, he's a Rebbe in Tamima, and he's a Robin in a very successful shul in Flatbush, where I was one of the first Mispalim when it started. The Minion started uh, about 10 years ago, and it started in a little shul, and now it's like they built a, be- a big, beautiful building, and there's 
many, many hundreds of Balabatim that come there and, and, and Tamid Chacham that have in there. And it's a, he, he's a wonderful person. And he said a vart one Shabbos that really struck me as being very emesic. He's Mysif on this vart that we're speaking about with Yaakov Avinu. And he says that the reason why Yaakov Avinu believed what they said at the end was they told over the words of Yasef. What words of Yasef did they repeat? They already said that he was a Maisha B'chalai What was the words that Yasef wanted Yaakov to know? So he said that the Pasuk before in Perak Memhe Pasuk Yod Gimel says that Yasef tells the brothers I want you to tell my father of all of my covet in Mitzrayim, all of my honor that they're giving me in Egypt. That's what I want you to tell my father. So Pashtus, that was the message. That was as called Divrei Yosef, Asher Divrei This is the words of Yosef that was supposed to be conveyed to Yaakov. Now, do you think Yaakov would get nachas from hearing that Yosef has a lot of covet. There's a lot of honor that's being given to me. Who cares? Why would Yaakov Vino care if they're rolling out the red carpet and giving him a, you know, a 21-gun salute every time he gets off you know, Air Force One? Who cares? Why is that important to Yaakov? So what he said was like this. There's a grah that we all should know. In Parashat Vayetze, the sons of Laban says to Yaakov, they say to Yaakov, all of your honor, all of your wealth and your possessions all come from our father. You stole it. You took it from Laban. All the covet. And the, the Medrash there says, The only honor that we find is Kesev is having silver, having gold, having a lot of wealth. That's covered. That's what the brothers, that's what the sons of Lavan meant when they told Yaakov Avinu that you stole all the covered from our father. You took your covered. That's Kesavizov, says the Medrash. Dechseh, because there's a postage in Nochem, Tarek Beis, that says, Baizu Kesef, Baizu Zav, covered Mikol Klichemda. So again, he used the Lashon of Kavid in the context of Zav and Kesef. So honor refers to money. That's what honor is. Frek the Grah, what are you talking about? How can this measure say that ain't Kavid el Kesef is Zav? And albeit that it marshals a Pasuk in Nachum, but we have other Pesukim, and there's in fact a Mishnah Abbas that says, ain't covet ela Tyra. The only covet in the world is Tyra. So, and it brings a Pasuk. The Pasuk says that the Pasuk says um, by Tyra, it says that covet chacham min chalu. That the honor of, of the of the Chachamim will be inherited. So Kavad there is referring to Tyra. Ain't Kavad ala Tyra. What does it mean, ain't Kavad ala Kesev Where did that measure come from? 
Zatigra. You know what the Medrash means? If you look in the Pasuk by Lavan, where it says that from our father you took all this covet, you know how the word covet is spelled? It's spelled chaser. Chaf Vez Dalid. You took all this covet, but it's spelled chaser. The Pasuk in Nachum, when it says in Nachum that Baizu Kesef, Baizu Zav, Kavid, Mikal Klichemda, again, Kavid is spelled Chasu without the Vav. Zat the Grah, where the, the, the only two places in Tanakh where Kavid is spelled Chaser is these two places. And so when it's spelled Chaser, that's the Kavid, which is not Mali. It's Kavid. When a person is very wealthy, so he is given Kavid, there's no denying that. If you look in any you know, Jewish newspaper, you will see on every page there's a dinner. And on every dinner ad, there are honorees. Generally speaking, they're not honoring the biggest Hamid Rechamim. Sometimes they might be as, uh, you know, just to, you know, balance the, uh, the, the, the day a little bit. But most of the people that they're honoring, I don't think this is a secret, are people that are Gbirim. They're honoring people that have money. And that's, okay, that's fine, because they're doing good stuff with their money. They're giving it to, to yeshivas and to, and to mekaymes ha But at the end of the day, when a person is honored for money, let's say, forget about it, yeshiva dinner. Maybe that's a bad example, because there it's more for the purpose of Tyra. But let's say some people get honor in general. Who gets shishi? You know, in shuls around the world, if you want to know who's the chashuvah person, you go to a, a random shul, and you want to see who the chashuvim are, look at who gets shlishi, and look at who gets shishi. Those are the chashuvim. The people that get revi, and in yeshivas, by the way, it doesn't matter. Everything is the same. It's just, this is like, I don't even know, people don't even know where this came from, but shlishi and shishi are chashuv. There's a joke that's told about a person that, like a big gavir that was visiting a town, and they give him chamishi, and he was very upset. Like the whole aliyah, you see, was all to hits. Like he was like he had smoke coming out of his ears because he got chamishi. Never got chamishi in his life. He had to make a shachianu after the aliyah. He always got either shlishi or shishi. So afterwards, he told the gabi, he says, you should know something. He says, in the town that I come from, they give chamishi to the dog. So the gabi says, yeah, we have the same minute here. <laughs> but... Who gets shishi? Who gets shlishi? It's the, the people with money. Because there is honor that's associated with money. There's no question about it. Ain't covered el But that type of covet, says the Grah, is covet that's chaser. It's not real honor. It's what the Muslim call covet hamiduma. It's an honor which is like a fantasy honor. It's a make-believe honor. There's nothing really to the person that deserves honor more than anybody else. Everybody deserves honor, of course. But there's nothing that makes a person with a few dollars more in his pocket more honorable than somebody with a few dollars less in his pocket. The fact that he's being honored for whatever he has, the fact that people, you know, speak to him in a more deferential manner, and they're like, ooh, you know, do you know who I sat next to in shul, and do you know who, you know, who I just saw, and whatever. You know, people make a big deal about wealthy people, What's, why, why is Warren Buffett and Bill Gates better than the guy you know, that lives next door to them? Or lives in the same town on the other side of the tracks than it? Nothing. 
He's chashid because he has money. But money itself is a covet, but it's covet which is chaser. It's spelled without above. It's covet amiduma. When the Mishnah and Havis says, Ein covet ala and it brings the apostle of covet chacham yin that covet is spelled male, because that's the only true type of covet in the world. The only true, you want to know what covet really is, covet really is covet atayra. When a person is a Talmud Chacham, and a person knows how to learn, and a person gets covered for his greatness in learning, and for his Yerushalayim, and for his Chesed, that's real covered. Everything else, all the other types of covered in the world, even though it seems, wow, it's so real, it's so chashev, you know, you see people that are, you know, being honored in certain ways at certain dinners, or in ticker tape parades, or, you know, being a very influential politician, they get coveted. There's a lot of covet in Washington. There's a lot of covet in Hollywood. And there's a lot of covet in, in Wall Street. But that covet is not real covet. That's fake covet. It doesn't mean a thing. It's so, it's so empty and it's so hollow that it's really almost worthless. It's a covet, but it's, so, it's deficient covet. The only covet is covet atayra. And so, what my Rebbe wanted to say was that Yosef was telling his father, was sending the message, Tell him about the covet that I had in Egypt. You know the covet is written there? Of course, it's written Mole. It's the type of covet that Yaakov would appreciate. The cover that I have in Egypt is not the cover that they're giving me from the official state dinners and all the pomp and circumstance and glory that Yosef definitely had being the viceroy of Egypt. That was like the most powerful position in the world. It was the coolest gig to have to be the viceroy of Egypt. That was it. But that's not the cover that I appreciated, said Yosef. Tell Tati what exactly the cover that I did appreciate was. It was the covet, which is the real covet, not the covet Hamaduma, not the Kesev and Zav, but it was the covet Hamiti, the covet Atayra, the covet Chacham Yinchalo. That's what I took honor in. My honor stems from my Liman Atayra. That's what, despite all of the other trappings of power, the thing that I really pride myself with is the covet that I have for the Liman Atayra that I do. That's what the brothers conveyed to Yaakov, and that's why Yaakov Avinu was revived. His spirit was revived knowing the type of covet that, that Yosef had in Mitzrayim was not a covet Amaduma, which is what he was afraid of, but rather was the covet Hamiti. The Mesol Sisharim in Parakid Aleph speaks about the evil of Chemdes HaKovet. It's a big taiva in life for covet. We all know that. We all like covet. Everybody wants covet. Now, how do you define covet? Different people define it different ways. Some people define covet as, you know, I want to be known as the masmin in yeshiva. I want to be known as the lamdin in yeshiva. I want to be known as the balchesin in yeshiva. Some people want to be known as the, the person that does the best in college, that got into the best graduate school that's able to run the best business. Every person's definition of covet is different. 
the Mesosi Sharm says that there is an evil involved in craving honor. He says, the only type of honor that a person should crave, the only real honor that exists, says Ramchal, is truly, truly understanding and knowing and being comfortable in the Yama Talmud. Like we just said. All other types of honor, says Ramchal, is covet hameduma v'chayzev. It's fake. It's not real honor. They're honoring you, but the honor you should know is not real. It's deficient. Hevel v'ein mayobay. It's hevel. If you examine what covet is, I mean, let's start, you know, dissecting covet. What is covet already? Let's say, you know, somebody writes a very, very glowing article about me in a newspaper or on a website and saying how brilliant I am and how great I am. And what is that? Why do I feel so good when I read that? cares. The answer is because there's something in the world called kavod. That's an undeniable fact. And you know what? Kavod, the Rambam says that kavod really is what makes the world go round. Because if not for kavod, the Rambam uses a, a, a great lusher, I don't know it exactly, but he says that that the world would not be built zulasi mishugayim. If not for crazy people, the world would not exist. Because why do people build skyscrapers in Manhattan. Which Meshuggah said, you know what, I'm going to build the world's tallest building. Why would he do that? You know what work goes into that? Can you imagine like the architect having to design, you know, 150 flight floors with all these elevators and all the intricate, you know, who has time for this? You know, there's easier ways of making a Parnassus than to build a skyscraper. There's easier ways of making a Parnassus than to have to build a huge company like a Microsoft or a Google, like, who, who, who asked you to do that? The answer is that there are Meshugayim that are driven to excel and to make something better and greater than anyone ever did in their life. And that's what motivates people to build. That, that's what gives a person drive, and that's what builds the world that we live in. You know, the campus that we're on, Everybody that lives in Kew Gardens Hills for a long time tells me every time I saw it, say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, that I'm a mashkiach in Spanish with Talmud. Where's that land of God? Oh, 150th Street. Do you know that? But he, they, everyone, every, anyone in Queens has to tell me the story of land of God. Like, I didn't hear it a thousand times. You know, basically this plan, I remember, you know, years ago, I used to also pass by this area. It was basically this whole campus and to the Opal and beyond the Opal was basically a boarded-up area. It was a block in, in, in New York City which had absolutely no tachlis. There was nothing here. It was a swamp mamish. It was an agam. And obviously, it's a very valuable piece of property because, you know, you know each house in Kew Garden Hills is, you know, starts at a half a million dollars. So here you have room to build about, you know, at least a couple hundred houses. So we're talking about, you know, like, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But nobody wanted this piece of land. Because every person was told that it's impossible to build anything on this. Whatever you build will sink right into the ground. It's impossible. It's a swamp. And so the land, like, exchanged hands, like, many times. Then Chavitz Chaim owned it for a while, and they sold it. 
Dr. Lander bought the land. He bought it for like nothing. And he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be able to do what no one else was able to do. They say, you're crazy. I mean, Rabbi Lander, there were like board meetings. People were like screaming at, Rabbi Lander, at Dr. Lander like, you're crazy. First of all, you can't build it. Even if you build it, who's going to want to come here? And so he got some architects and he was able, and people said like they were living in the neighborhood. They were like, there was these machinery that were like, they, they were woken like in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, whenever, but it was like, boom, boom. Like they were like, they had to like shoot down deep into the Tahaim, these huge steel foundations because, you know, it was not shy to build Stam on this property. And they were able to develop like an elaborate draining system. That's why if you walk, you know, by, towards the dorms, towards the apartments on 150th Street, you always hear like this trickling sound, like with a, there's like a drain with like water always running because they figured out a way to drain constantly all the water that's in the ground, drains out into the public, into the, you know, into the public uh, sewage pipe. But no one else was able to do it. Dr. Lander comes along in 2000, the year 2000, or the late 1990s, and says, I'm going to do it. Why do you do that? Who cares? Like, don't do it. So you're, you're in your 80s. Like, leave it alone. But certain people, and I'm not calling Dr. Lander Meshuggah, but certain people have a, a drive to accomplish something that no one, no one else was able to. They look at something that everybody else says it can't be done. They look at that as a challenge. And they rise to the occasion, they build it. Because that's what drives people. People like challenges. People like becoming the person that did it, that did the impossible. That's covered. The Mesosa Sharm says, and again, this, I didn't want to use that as an example of covered Amadun because look what he built. But in general, if you can apply that to all of the other spheres of life, Everything that's built throughout the world is because people have a taiva for covet. So it's a necessary component in the world, but the Ramchal wakes us up and reminds us that that is not a covet which you should be coveting. That's not what you should be after. The only covet that's kedai to have is the covet of Yediyah Satayra Bahamas. That's it. That's what the Mitzvah Hashem is on. Simple truth. That's the beauty of the Mitzvah Hashem. He says it the way it is. He doesn't, you know, embellish other things. And he says it the way it is. And he's saying that the only cover that's good to have is the Everything else is a hevel made by mail. There's nothing you get from it. Covet is really nothing. It's just a figment of your imagination. I had this chus to learn Sharm, or a, a, a large section of Mesosu Sharm, I should say, with Rebaran Schechter and Musser Seid in Chaim Berlin for several years. And when we were learning this Ramchal, this piece of Mesosu Sharm, he said that the reason for this is, why is it that the only covet is covet of Yediyah Satayra? He says, because what is covet? What's the true covet in the world? The only true covet in the world is Baruch Tabayit Hashem Em Chaimah. The covet of the Rabbani Shalom is the only true covet. The Rabbani Shalom is covet. If there's one entity of covet in the world, it's Kedusha HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Kedusha HaKadosh Baruch Hu cries out, covet. And everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created in this world was for his covet. What's the first bracha of Shavar Brachos? What is it? 
that everything HaKadosh Baruch created was for his own covet. That's the only type of covet that's to die. If you can somehow, someway, affiliate your covet with the Rabbi Shalem's covet, that's the covet Amiti. Everything else is fake covet. It's a, it's, a, it's a replacement covet. It's a covet which is not the true covet. It's a, it's a cheap imitation covet. It makes us feel, it simulates the covet of the Rabbi Shalem, but it's not the reason why everybody wants covet is because they want to tap in. Their neshama wants to tap in to the covet amiti, which is like a shvarfu in the tire, but they don't know how to do that. So they go for other methods of covet. They want to be the fastest runner in the world. They want to build the biggest bridge in the world. They want to be, you know, the, the, whatever it is, the, the, the greatest entrepreneur in the world. They want everybody to know about them because they want to tap into the shchina. Subliminally, that's what they understand to be the point of life, but they miss the boat. The only way to really get into the covet, to plug yourself into the plug, to the outlet of the real covet in the world, is through Taira and through Kedusha. That's the only, that's the ultimate covet. That's the only covet. It's the covet of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Baruch Hu Hashem, Mim Kaimai. And this is something that we have to really try to remember because we live in a, in a country that really idolizes money. And everybody, you know, the American dream is to strike it very wealthy and to retire young and to be able to live like a king. And we're brought up with these values. We're brought up, you know, I don't know what your generation was brought up. I remember when I was a kid, you know, my favorite comic book was Richie Rich. I don't know if anyone knows who Richie Rich is, Bechlau. But Richie Rich was the coolest kid in the world. He was, he was, I don't know why, but they call him the poor little rich boy. That was always the subtitle. But Richie Rich was a person, he was a kid. He was like, you know, before Bar Mitzvah. And he had, you know, he had everything. He lived in like this mansion and everything was money. Like every, he was just surrounded by wealth. And there was no shortage of it. But I guess the point of the comic was that even such a kid had his share of issues, but it was so geschmack, he was so wealthy. And that's what, you know, that's in your mother's note, that's normal. That's what you're growing up thinking, that covet, the real covet is having money. And who is lionized, who is idolized, the people that are the celebrities and the people that are, you know, the young finder, founders of, uh, you know, these high-tech companies that go public and now you're worth billions of dollars. That's who we idolize, that's the, that's the reality. I think we can all agree to that. And so we have to work against that. If we have that in us, and I think we all do to some degree or another, we're massive people that have money. You know, this, there's a Powerball, I think $291 million or something like that. And everybody's like buying tickets, tickets. And why? Because that's the dream. The dream is if I can make enough money, then I have covered. And then I'm happy. But obviously, in the eyes of Chazal, and in the eyes of our Rabbi all the covet of Mitzrayim, all the trappings of wealth were not, the Yaakovina didn't care. If I was a, you know, I think if the average father would be able, or mother would be able to say, my son is the, is the vice president of the United States of America, that's a pretty big covet. Yaakovina said, I don't care. If he's the vice president of the United States of America, I, he might as well be dead. If he's not from, and he's not Shemitah, I don't care about that fake covet. Because the G'daylam were able to always see beyond and right through that fake covet and understand that if you're not 
having the covet amiti, then all types of covet is false. It's all fake. And it's all false. If you're a tamachacham, and you're able to be successful in business, and you're able to give money to yeshivas, and to support your sons in learning, and your sons-in-laws in learning, and yourself in learning, then that's kibaldi. That's unbelievable. But the real covet has to be affiliated with Tyra. If you want covet, and the covet has to be true covet, that's why I'm saying even if you're a guest of honor at the dinner, but you're giving money to Tyra and you're inspiring others to do it, that's covet, that's covet amiti, I think. That's true covet, because you're being mechabe Tyra through your, through your giving to Tyra. But the other types of covet, to get a big yacht and to get a big mansion and to get all the other, that's not covet. If you're not living a good life, if you're not using your money and your resources for covet and for Kedusha Yisrael and Kedusha Hashem, then that's not a life. And there's no covet in it. So it's covet, but it's covet meduma. It's covet which is spelled without above. There's a great vart, a great story told about Reb Chaim Brim. Reb Chaim Brim was nifter a few years ago. He was one of the G'dayla Yerushalayim. Big, big tzaddik. And tremendous Talmud and everything. Yerushalayim was off the charts. And he, he lived to a ripe old age. He had a very chashem mishpacha. And he had no money. That was the only problem. He had zero money. Mamish nothing. And he had a large family to support. One day, the mashkiach in the yeshiva that his son was learning in came over to him and said, I have a job you know, for you, a tutoring job. And it pays you know, nice money, I don't know, 50 shekel an hour and you know, a very wealthy young man, boy that you could tutor and, you know, you can milk this cow for all it's worth. I know your family, you know, needs money, so maybe it's Kedai to take the job. And Okay, so you took the job and every day he would tutor this boy and the, the shkalim were adding up a lot. You know, he grew up without any money. All of a sudden he had a lot of money. And he came home excitedly at the end of the month to his father, Sir Chaim Brim, and he gives his father like a fat envelope full of shkalim. And his father says, you know, what is this? He says, I want to give it to Tati. You know, I know that you need money and whatever, and the family needs, you know, we have a lot of needs and whatever. I'm giving you the money. He says, where'd you get it from? He says, well, I, the mashkiach of the yeshiva came over to me and arranged that I should tutor a, a boy, and I, you know, every day I'm making 50 shkalim, and it's gewaldic. He says, and I did it, l'shem shamayim, I did it so that, you know, we can have money and the family can give you know, mommy money, and you can have, the kids can have money, and we can eat a little better, we can have some food in the cupboard. Rav Chaim Brim started screaming at his son. He says, I don't understand. He says, you took money to teach Tyra? You know we're not, we don't do that in our family. He says, when you learn Tyra, you learn it, and you teach it l'shem shamayim. You have to give it, it's a, it's a, it's, you have to make yourself a midbar. You have to give yourself up for Tyra. You don't get money for Tyra. It's not, it's not, you're not tutoring algebra. You're teaching somebody Tyra. How dare you take money? Take this money, give it back to the boy's parents. Give it back to Mashiach. And Chaim Brim's son was like all shaken up. And he basically went back, he gave the Mashiach the money. And that was the end of the story. He continued teaching the boy without money, without getting paid for it. When Reb Chaim Brim was nifter, the Mashkiach came to be Menachem Abel by the son. 
And he says, now I can tell you the whole story. He says, your father came to me. And your father says that I want to be mechanech, my son, not to be machshim money so much. He says, but I can't teach him that because I don't have money. If I would have money, if I'd be a millionaire and I wouldn't spend it and I'd only give it to Tyra and sit like, you know, like a bedachos, it's one thing, but I don't have money. So he's probably thinking, oh, if, if we would have money, life would be better, life would be easier, life would be more gishmak, I'd live like a, you know, with much more covet. He says, so there's only one way that I can be mechanech my son about this. And he says, I want you to go over to my son and I want you to tell him that you have a job for him. And I want you to find a boy to teach. And I'm going to find, I'm going to borrow temporarily a couple of hundred shkalim or a couple of thousand shkalim. I'm going to put it in an envelope. At the end of the month, you're going to give it to him. He's going to give it to me. And then I'm going to make him give it back to you to teach him the lesson that money is not as hush of the Tyra. Tyra is Tyra, money is money, and the two cannot mix. This is what Reb Chaim Brim did in order to be mechanech his son about how Kavit is really Kavit Atayra, and the other is his Kavit Amaduma. There's a Misa that's told about Rav Dessler, it's in his biography. Rav Dessler, after the war, in, he was living in England, and people, you know, there was a depression going on, there were, people had no money, and they, they were selling all of their stuff because they needed to raise money. So a Talmud, or Rav Dessler, came to Rav Dessler, and said, Rebbe, there's an auction, like a Judaic auction, taking place somewhere in England, and, you know, I have some money, I want to buy things that are going to be very cheap, I hear. People are selling, you know, their Seder plates, and their, their Bechers, and their Havdolo sets, or whatever, for mamish 10 cents on the dollar. Says, do you want to come with me? It should be an interesting experience. So Dessler was always interested in, you know, in seeing what was going on in the world. He said, sure, I'd love to come. So they went to this place, and there was an auction, a lot of people in the room, and people were selling all their finest family heirlooms. So like a menaira, a gorgeous menaira from the 17th century, with like, you know, worth normally $100,000, was like, you know, okay, we'll start the bidding with uh, $40. You know, there's like one old guy saying, all right, $40, you know, $50. And like, it was like a joke. Like there was no, no one was bidding, there was no money. So this Talmud like, got all excited. He said, $50. Sold to the man over there with a, with a, with a black coat, $50. And he brings the Menorah, like he goes up, pays for it, gets the Menorah, brings it back, and he's so excited. He got like $100,000 Menorah, 50 bucks. And Rav Dessler looks at him and says, you know, that's a really beautiful Menorah. He says, do you mind if, if I have it? Can you give it to me? He says, okay. You know, if Rebbe wants a menorah, I, I guess, you know, you want it, it's yours. He says, thank you. He puts it, like, on his chair. He had, like, a maybe a little cardboard box. He puts it in there. Anyway, next thing up for bid is a beautiful uh, Seder plate. You know, three-deck Seder plate. weighs about 100 pounds. Um, you know, we'll start the bidding off with $25. $25, $30, $33, $40. $45. Sold to the man in the black coat. And he runs up there, gets 50 bucks, and he you know, gets changed, and he comes back with a say, he's so happy. And her desolate says to him, that's a beautiful Seder plate. Do you mind, maybe if I have it, says, Rebbe wants this also? Yeah, if you don't mind. So, all right, Rebbe wants it, it's his. So he, you know, puts it into his box. 
The next thing up for auction is a beautiful Basalmen box, you know, really like one of these big ones from Germany back in the 1800s with flags on it and looks like a castle. Very Start the bid off $15. That's like a, you know, $10,000 Basalmen box for $15. It's, again, like he bids, he gets it for like $20, $25. And he's so happy. And again, he sits down with it and there's that tap on the shoulder of Desla's looking at it and he says, do you mind? Anyway, this is the way the whole day was going. And they drive back you know, or Dessler sitting like, you know, like with a big smile on his face back in the car, a full box worth of Judaica, worth like a million dollars, you know, and he's just happy as can be. And this Nebuch, this Kailo guy or whatever that's, you know, that bought all of it and is coming home with nothing except for like Chayvis now, you know, a big credit card bill with nothing to show for it. And he's like miserable. And he didn't understand. It was Mamash a but it was not much like the Paraduma. He could not understand why Rav Dessler would ask for this. not like Rav Dessler, and what does he need it for? He doesn't have his family. His family was in, like, Lithuania. Like, what, what is he going to need it for? Anyway, Erev Shabbos. A couple of days later, there was a knock on the door of this Avrich's house, and there was standing Rav Dessler with this whole box of priceless Judaica. And, and this... This Kailo guy answers the door and says, Rabbi, please come in. And Abdesla puts down the whole box on his dining room table and says, this is all yours. He says, no, Rabbi, I gave it to you. He says, no, 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 it's all yours. He says, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? He says, what, what was going on there by the auction? He says, I've been pondering this since the auction was over. Every single thing that I bought, Rabbi wanted. I didn't know that Rabbi was such a big collector I didn't know that you appreciated this stuff. I was just taking you there just to see the auction. I didn't know you actually liked this stuff. And I know you like this stuff, I would have left you at home. Why did you come and take all the, all, 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 you know, it's called Kavaydi. Why? So if Desler said, I didn't want this stuff, I don't need this stuff, I have no appreciation for this stuff. And besides, obviously, for the Tashmisha Mitzvah Shabbai, but I don't, I'm not a collector. He says, but I saw in you that you were getting so excited about materialism that you were able to make a killing here, and I saw that your blood started percolating for the wrong type of COVID. And so I had to somehow be able to get rid of that taiva that you had for COVID, for the COVID Amidumah, for this false COVID, which money is, and affluence is, and the trappings of wealth are. He says, I had to sort of take it away from you. And that's why I kept asking you if I could have it, because I wanted to burst that bubble, that inflated bubble that was meaningless, that was heavily in by Mayo. I wanted to take that away from you. Now that I think I have done that, now you can have it all back. That's what a Rebbe is. That's what a Baal is. That's what a real Mashkiach does. Sometimes you have to give somebody real Musser, practically, in order to make a person realize what's true and what's not true. We'll end with one more story. There was a very famous Balabas, very wealthy, his name was Rabinyamin Banish Dennis of Charkov. He was from a city of Charkov and he was a very wealthy Kavir. And he had a huge mansion, a beautiful mansion. And in the mansion, it was not in style then, but he was like ahead of his time that he had like a white carpet. You ever go to people's houses and they have a white carpet? I have a relative has a white carpet, no one's able to ever, you come into the house, you have to take your shoes off, and you got a mamish like, like, sit there, that you might spill something on, you know, on the floor, or get something wet, or whatever, and like, that's, but that's what this person had. 
One night, there was a knock on the door. It was a very big Baal There was a knock on the door, but it wasn't the front door. It was the side door of the house, the kitchen entrance. And he opens the door, and there was standing Rebbechanan Vassaman. Rebbechanan Vassaman was, of course, we all know Rebbechanan, but he was a Rosh Hashiva that also had to go around the world collecting money for his yeshiva. So, so this Rebbechanan Benish Dennis, this Kavir says, Kvayd Rosh Hashiva, I'm so happy to see you. It wasn't the first time Rebbechanan came to the house. He says, I want you to come into my house, but I don't understand why, you, why you're coming through the side entrance of the house. Why not come through the front? Like, to, you know, through a big door as the, the Chashrava enters the house. That's where the Rashiva should come through. So he says, I know, normally I would, but it's very wet outside, it's very rainy, and it's very, the roads are very muddy, and I have mud on my boots, I have mud all over my coat from schlepping around in this weather, and I know that you have that white carpet on the floor, and you have white couches in your living room, and I know that if I come in there with my boots, I'm going to wreck the whole house, and you're going to be upset with me, and I don't want you to be upset with me. So this Balabas says to Rebbe Hanan, says, I want the Rosh Hashiva to go around to the front doors of my house and come right in through the normal entrance. So he says, no, I won't do it. I don't want to wreck your house. He says, Rabbi, he says, I have daughters in my house and I want to be mechanich them that they should understand that the whole house that I have and the whole carpet and the whole couch and everything that we have is all Raman Hashem and it's all for the covet of Torah. I want the Rosh Hashiva to come in with his muddy boots and walk every step with his holy feet on my white carpet. And then I want you to sit on my white couch and get it all bloodied up, all full of mud and dirt and schmutz and make it as dirty as you can be so that my daughter should come down and they're going to ask me, how did the house become so dirty? And I'll say, because this is the covenant of Torah. This is what we live for. And this is what's important to us. And this is what all the wealth is for, is in order to be able to mefarnes Torah. And he did that. He went around, he came in with his dirty boots and his dirty coat and he made the whole white carpet dirty and he made the couch full of schmutz. But you know something? Those daughters grew up and those daughters married G'dayle Eilam. All of the great Rosh Hashivas of Tal Yeshiva were married to the Dennis daughters. The Blochs and everybody. Rav Gifter is a his, his wife was a granddaughter of this Rebloch, of this Rebdenis. This is how you're Mechanech. Like Rebchaim Brim, and like Rebdesler, and like Rebdenis. This is how you show people what real covet is. Covet is not what we think it is. Covet is not when people are able to brag about doing this and going on this vacation, owning this and having that. That's covered, but it's covered without evolve. It's covered on Medumah. The real covered, and we can only appreciate this and have ears for this when we're in yeshiva. Because once you go out to the quote-unquote real world, you're going to forget everything. You're not going to know that this is true. So hopefully we'll remember it a little bit. That the only purpose of making money is not for the money itself, but it's in order to get to the real covered, which is the covered of Tyre.
to support Tyra, to mechanech our children and the importance of Tyra, and to live a life of Tyra ourselves. That's covered. Everything else is false covered. The Yikadatem Lavias called Kedayi and Mitzrayim, Yosef was telling the brothers to tell my father about the cover that I appreciate. Not the cover that I have and that people are in awe of me over. That's nothing to me. To Yosef HaTzadik, the real cover was the cover that counted. And that's the cover of Tyra. And that's when Yaakov Avinu, Vatzuchi Ruach Yaakov Avinu. And the same thing is true. Yaakov Avinu is Klal Yisrael's happy. And when we behave in a manner that appreciates real covet and the only covet, then that's a chiruach Yaakov Avim. If we go for the other type of covet, Yaakov gets no nachas from that. That's a type of covet which Yaakov sees right through. And Vayofeg Levi, Kilehem Enlam, I'm disgusted by that. I want to die from that type of covet. I can't be saival that type of covet. That's covet Amidumo, that's fake. The only type of covet is Baruch Kabayd Hashem and Kaimai. And the closer that we're able to get to that type of covet in our life, the more our life has value, the more our life has meaning. And in Mitzvah Hashem, the Rabbi Yisraelim will have abundant nachas with the covet that we are reaping from his Torah. Have a good chance.